You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans. Welcome to Gospel Community Church. If I don't know you, my name is Brad Leibold, one of the pastors here. Uh, I just want to shout out to the people that made that video. So I don't think we've done this yet. Uh, Rick wrote the script and Daniel Odegaard put together the fi- footage. Zach kind of managed the project and then Adam Delf did the voiceover. And it's awesome. The video turned out so well. Uh, whenever those guys uh, get to work and make these videos, they turn out really good and, and overview whatever book we're in really well. Like the video said, we're in Romans. We're doing a series through the book of Romans, which is a intimidating task for a, a church to take on. Romans is so, there's so much in it. It's so robust. And most pastors would say that by the end of their career as a pastor, they'd probably preach very differently through the book of Romans. You could say that about any book, but Romans especially feels super intimidating, but we're tackling it. We're really excited about it. And today we're going to be looking at what uh, is agreed is kind of the thesis statement of Romans. What is the entire book of Romans about in two verses? We're going to be looking at that today. So if you will, open up your Bibles to the book of Romans, to chapter 1. We're going to look at two verses today, verses 16 and 17. And as you're you're turning there, I'll open this up in a word of prayer. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for Gospel Community Church. Thank you that uh, you've called us out of darkness and into light, and you've put us together here in a community of believers. Uh, Your body here uh, in this local congregation where we get to love one another and care for one another and serve one another, where we get to encourage one another in the gospel and remind each other of truth. I know I'm so incredibly thankful for this church family that you have uh, knit together and and placed here in this uh, this location. Uh, We pray that you continue to work in our church, to grow it in in depth and breadth, and that you'd use us in our community uh, to bring the message of the gospel 
into the lives of, of those we know and those we don't. Uh, we thank you for Foster the County and the, the blessing that that has been so far uh, in kind of its early stages. And we pray that you continue to grow that ministry, uh, to grow that outreach to the community in ways that allow us to reach into the lives of people who uh, need you and need to know what it, what it looks like to be loved by an infinite, holy, uh, good God. Pray that you would use Foster the County to build relationships that ultimately end up in opportunities to, to share and preach the gospel message and, and that you use us to, to love on people well. Pray that you would grow that ministry in our church and, and grow it in our community also. God, as we uh, come to this text today in the, the Gospel of Romans, as we look at these two verses with so much packed into it, God, I pray that you would help us all to see even more clearly uh, what this gospel is, uh, what it is that you have done for us, who Jesus is, and, and, and what he accomplished on our behalf in his life, death, and resurrection. Father, I pray that uh, today's message would not simply uh, increase head knowledge and, and that we would know more facts about you, but that you'd be using your word and, and the power of the gospel to transform transform our hearts, to transform our lives, that you would shape each of us as individuals and as a community according to your word. God, help me to speak clearly and boldly, and I pray that ultimately you would get the glory this morning in everything we say and everything we do uh, in our time together. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I know we know, we all know what it is like to be embarrassed. I'm sure you have many embarrassing stories uh, that you could share about yourself. If you don't, you're just lying to yourself. Uh, for whatever reason, this embarrassing story always comes to mind when I think of embarrassing things that happened to me. It happened when I was really little. I was, uh, when I was, I still kind of am this, but less so now, a very quiet and shy as a kid. And I did not like big groups. I did not like a lot of attention on me. I avoided crowds. Uh, and my family took uh, me and my brother to church when we were little. And our church would do, this is like outdated now, but we would have potlucks, uh, which is where everyone gathers after church and you bring a side dish and you all eat it together. Uh, it's a tradition I think we should bring back. It'd be a lot of fun. Uh, but we were at a potluck after church. And I had this crazy idea that I normally wouldn't have had. Uh, I saw my mom in line at the potluck, and I was like, I'm going to run and jump on her back like she's going to give me a piggyback ride, and she doesn't, you know, she's facing away from me. She doesn't know I'm here. This will be a fun and good idea. And so I took off running across the fellowship hall of our church, and I jumped through the air, and mid-jump, I thought, or I realized, this isn't my mom. <laughs> And, and I landed on this random woman's back and I was like, ah, this is horrible. And she turned around. She's like, who are you? And I was like, who are you? And everyone turned and looked and uh, my face got beat red and I wanted to go crawl in a hole and never crawl out of it uh, because I hated the attention. I still, to this day, I don't know who the woman was uh, uh, that gave me a temporary piggyback ride, but um, <laughs> super embarrassing. That's just one of many stories I, I could tell. I don't remember a lot as a kid, but for some reason, like that event was so traumatic and it induced so much emotion in me that it's like Im permanently embedded in my brain. So that's my embarrassing story. Uh, we all know what it's like to feel embarrassed. We all know what it's like to be ashamed about something, whether it's in our past or our present, whether it's something about us or something we've done. And that is in part what our text today is about. Like I said, we're in Romans 1 verses 16 through 17 this morning. Virtually every scholar agrees that these two verses are kind of the thesis statement, the topic statement, the main point of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Paul packs a ton of gospel and theology into these two short verses. And then he proceeds to unpack everything that he stuffs in these two verses for the next 16 chapters, which we'll be looking at uh, over the next several months. Uh, but, but 
to, before we get into kind of these two verses, it's helpful to remember, remember the context that we're in and the context of this thesis statement uh, that Paul is giving. And if we remember, the context is that he is eager to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. So let's start reading. We'll actually start in verse 14 of Romans chapter 1 to kind of refresh us of where, what, where Rick left off last week. Verse 14 says, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So if you remember last week, Rick shared or talked about how there's two different kinds of debt that we can have. Well, the first kind of debt is if uh, you loan me $100 and I owe you that $100 back, that's one kind of debt. The other kind of debt would be that you give me $100 and tell me to pass it along to someone else. Now, uh, now I'm not necessarily indebted to you, but I, I'm under obligation to pass that along to someone else. And that's the, that second kind of debt is the kind of debt that Paul has. It's the kind of debt that we all have as Christians. We've all been given something of tremendous value, the gospel, and now we are obligated then because of the value of this thing to pass it on to others. And this obligation makes Paul eager, excited, uh, zealous to preach the gospel to those who are in Rome. And he says, and then why is he eager to preach the gospel? Verse 16, because he's not ashamed of it. He's not embarrassed by it. He's proud of it. And so then he goes on to explain why he's unashamed of the gospel. And that's where kind of the meat of the thesis statement in this book is, this concise but loaded explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that he's so eager to share with the world. So we're going to, eventually we're going to see four reasons why Paul is unashamed of this gospel and why we can be too. But first I want to consider why Paul has to say this. Why does he feel the need to say that he is unashamed of the gospel? I think it's fair to assume that he has to say this because there's a great temptation to be ashamed of the gospel, to be embarrassed by it, or at the very least to hesitate sharing it for fear of what people might think of it or of us. And I know I, need, I, know I feel this. I know the gospel and I believe that it is true, but when it comes time to share it with non-believing friends or family, I get nervous because the world to because to the world, the gospel is both foolish and offensive. And this is not a new phenomenon, uh, phenom phenomenon, phenomena, which one's plural? Phenomenon? Chris, where are you at? Huh? Phenomenon? Uh, thanks for nothing, Chris. Okay. Uh, uh, this is nothing new. Uh, the gospel has always been considered foolish and offensive to the world, even in Paul's day. And this is, this, so this shouldn't be a surprise to us. Think about what it is that we believe in this gospel. We believe that there is one God who existed, who has existed for eternity in three distinct persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. This God created everything out of nothing and is the ultimate authority in our life and in our world. We believe that humans have wicked hearts and that we're sinful from birth because of our rebellion against God. And there is nothing we can do on our own to save ourselves from our sin and eternal separation from God. We believe that Jesus Christ was an actual person who walked on this earth 2000 years ago. He was the son of God who lived a perfect sinless life only to be crucified on a Roman cross where he atoned for the sins of the world. And three days later, he got out of the grave, rose from the dead and then ascended into heaven where right now he currently sits at the right hand of the father. 
We believe salvation is a free gift to all those who would come to Jesus, who would acknowledge their sin and believe in him for, the, for, for forgiveness and for eternal life. And we believe that one day Jesus will return to the earth to defeat sin, evil, and death, and bring all those who have believed in him into a new heavens and a new earth where we will live with God for eternity. So you can see why this might be both foolish and offensive to the world. It's offensive because we believe everyone is sinful and can do nothing to save themselves. And it's foolish because we believe that the only way we can be saved is by believing that God himself walked around the nation of Israel 2000 years ago, died on a cross and then rose from the grave. Now we have a few options for how we can respond to this pressure from the world to be ashamed of the gospel. The first option, unfortunately a common one is we can abandon it completely. We get rid of the gospel completely. The world is right. This is a foolish and offensive message. It's one that I cannot get behind. It's one that I cannot believe in. And so I'm done with it. And we probably all know people uh, in our life who have done just this for that very reason. The second option is to change the gospel. We don't want to abandon it completely. And so we'll twist and tweak it to make it more palatable to our preferences. We remove the parts of it that we don't like. We keep the parts that we do. But the irony of this option is it's no different than the first. If you tweak and change and twist the gospel, you have a totally different gospel and you've abandoned the true gospel. The the third option is to do what Paul does and eagerly preach the gospel because we're unashamed of it. Like I said, there's four reasons in these two verses why Paul is unashamed of the gospel. And we're going to look at each of those Now, my prayer is that our time together this morning would increase our confidence in the gospel and that we would all be unashamed of the gospel and then go from this place eagerly proclaiming it out of joyful obligation to the world. And so let's read 16 to 17 again, and we'll kind of work through this. It says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Our first reason to not be ashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God. What Paul says here is, is actually very profound because he's not saying that the gospel is about the power of God. It is, or that the gospel has some kind of power from God. He is saying that the gospel is the power of God. Do you want to see and experience the magnificent, transformative, explosive, life-changing power of God? preach the gospel, speaking the gospel, proclaiming it, preaching it, verbalizing it, unleashes the power of God unto salvation. Paul unpacks this a little bit later in Romans 10 verses 14 through 15. We'll get here eventually. He says, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. In order to receive salvation, one must believe. But how can someone believe if they, unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone has first preached this message to them? The gospel is news that must be proclaimed. And when this message is announced, we experience God's saving power. Imagine just for a second that you were in a building that was on fire and you didn't know how to get out of it, but I did. I knew the route out of the building to safety, but I didn't tell you. Me knowing a route to safety does no good for you until I announce that route, until I tell you where to go. It isn't until I tell you the way out, until I verbalize this message that any kind of salvation or transformation or action can take place. There's no power in me simply knowing the route to salvation until I announce that route to you. And then power is unleashed. 
Think about your own story. We were all lost and spiritually dead in our sins until we heard the gospel preached. When the gospel was spoken to us, maybe it was the first time you ever heard it, or maybe it took many times of you hearing the gospel, you responded to that message in faith and experienced salvation. The gospel is the power of God. I think Tim Keller is helpful here. We should have a quote up on the screen. It says, Paul is saying that the gospel is not merely a concept or a philosophy. In the gospel, words and power come together. The message of the gospel is what God has done and will do for us. Paul says that the gospel is therefore a power. He doesn't say it brings power or has power, but that it actually is power. The gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal, cognitive form. It lifts people up. It transforms and changes things. When it is outlined and explained or reflected upon, its power is released. The gospel is the power of God. And it's the power of God to do something. It has an end. It has something that it accomplishes. And that end is salvation. The gospel message is the power of God to save. If you notice in this verse, it's salvation that is both inclusive and exclusive. Salvation is available to everyone, to anyone, the Jew first and also the Greek. So Jesus was Jewish. He came through the nation of Israel. God's plan of redemption was to come through the Israelites, but then extend through Christ to the world, to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. And so it's available to anyone who believes. That's the exclusive part. Jesus, Jesus calls anyone and everyone to come to him and receive salvation. And in response to that call, we must believe. And we'll get to belief a little bit more uh, and a little bit later. But the first reason we should be unashamed of the gospel is because it is the power of God. Your friends and family who don't know Jesus, who think the gospel is foolish and offensive, will not be saved unless they hear the gospel. And they will not hear the gospel unless someone speaks it. Living a good Christian life in hopes that your non-Christian friends notice something different about you is not the power of God. The gospel message verbalized and spoken is the power of God for salvation. Good works and a different lifestyle and a good example should absolutely accompany the spoken gospel, but never replace it. And this should give us great confidence in our proclamation of the gospel because its power is not dependent upon how well we articulate it. Or if we say something, if we say it without our voice shaking, or if we say it very confidently, or if we say it with a lot of passion, or if we miss some of the fuzzy details, the power of the gospel is in the message, not the messenger. And so we proclaim the gospel boldly. So we can be unashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. The second reason we should be unashamed of the gospel is because it reveals God's righteousness. It reveals God's righteousness. Uh, a lot of ink has been spilled uh, in the pages of many books and commentaries on what exactly this phrase righteousness of God means. And there's kind of three main options that I'll run through very quickly. The first option is that it could be referring to God's character. God is a righteous God. He is just and holy and totally, completely good. And his righteous character is what has been revealed in the gospel. In the gospel, we get to see and know who God is. Second option is it could be referring to God's action. God's righteousness is an action in, as an action is his salvation and deliverance. His righteous activity in human history to bring about redemption to the world through the righteous life of Christ and righteous judgment of sin on the cross. The third, the third option of what this phrase could mean is it could be referring to God's gift. So God's character, God's action, God's gift. You could read it, and I believe the NIV translates it this way. The righteousness from God has been revealed. 
So meaning our right standing before God that comes from him and his grace. All those who are in Christ are counted, considered righteous. We're positionally right with God, justified, forgiven, and adopted into his family. Now, again, lots of ink has been spilled, all kinds of arguments for why Paul is using one or the other. I would like to think that we don't need to pick one, but that all three are probably what Paul has in mind because they're all so closely related. God is a righteous God that is true about his character. He is good and just and holy. And because that's who he is, he acts, therefore, in a righteous way. And he has acted righteously in his plan of redemption through Christ. And the result of a righteous God acting righteously in a world that has a bunch of unrighteous people in it is that they can become righteous in Christ. And all of that, all of this righteousness, God's character, his action, and his gift is revealed to us in the gospel. In the gospel, we get to see who God is. We get to see what he has done. We get to see who that makes us and then how we are to live righteously out of that. And so for this reason, we can be unashamed because the righteousness revealed in the gospel is the only hope for humanity. There are not multiple ways to heaven. We are not all on different journeys to the same destination. There is no such thing as your truth and my truth and everyone can have their own truth. There is only the truth, the way, and the life, and that's through Jesus Christ. You see, you can view religions and worldviews like a mountain, and everyone is trying to climb to the top of the mountain. And the top of the mountain could be God, or it could be salvation, or it could be enlightenment, or nirvana, or bliss, or whatever it is that we are trying to achieve in this life. And everyone's taking a different path up the mountain, uh, but we're all ultimately going to arrive at the same destination. Whether that path is the Christian path or the Muslim path or the Jewish path or the atheist path or the Buddhist path, whatever it might be, we're all headed to the same place. It just has different names. But that's not what the Bible says about salvation. What the Bible says about salvation is that everyone is wandering around the bottom of the mountain in circles, attempting to reach the top and save ourselves, but incapable of doing so. And so God comes down the mountain in Jesus to save us and show us the way, the only way, which is through Christ. There is no other hope for the non-believer. There is no other hope for our world than the hope of righteousness provided by a righteous God. And so we should unashamedly tell, the right, tell of the righteousness of God that justifies sinners through the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third reason we can be unashamed of the gospel is because it is received by faith. The gospel is received by faith. When we proclaim the gospel, when we tell people about the righteousness of God, we're not then giving people a list of religious activities they must do in order to receive the gospel. The righteousness of God is not available to those who will do everything they need to do to get it. It's available to those who will receive it by faith. And this is one of the kind of, there's a lot of things about the gospel that are countercultural. This is one of them because think about anything else that is promised to you in your life. You want to be, you want to lose weight and get fit. That's great. You just have to diet and exercise rigorously for the next six months to a year to longer than that. If you want to retire by the age of 60 and never have to work a day again in your life, that's great. You just have to start saving and investing this percentage of your income over the next 30, 35 years of your life, and you'll get there. If you want a promotion at work, that's great. You just have to hit these specific performance markers and stick with the company for this many years, and then you will be considered for the promotion. If you want to have well-behaved and obedient kids, then you just need to parent them in this way with consistent discipline while fostering their creativity and emotional health, and then you'll have them, allegedly. Uh, and then we come to the gospel and it's, you can receive salvation from God and be made right with him. You just have to believe and you will be credited with righteousness. You can receive salvation or this, uh, sorry, 
This verse was instrumental in Martin Luther's gospel awakening that led to the Protestant Reformation. When he discovered, when, when Luther was studying this passage in this verse, and he discovered that righteousness was a gift received passively, not something to be achieved by religious activity, this is what he said. I was born again of the Holy Spirit, and the doors of paradise swung open, and I walked through. Salvation avail- is available to us by God's grace and through our faith. And it's not just faith that gets you into the party. It's faith that keeps you in the party. It's from faith to faith or from faith beginning to end. So what exactly is faith? If faith is such a big deal, if faith is all that we need to be made righteous, what is faith? Faith is one of those Christian-y words that we just say all the time and we need to define and, and understand what is faith. So on the one hand, faith is, you could see it as mental assent. It's cognitive recognition or acknowledgement or belief that something is real or true. Having faith in Christ is in part acknowledging and believing that he is the son of God, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sacrificial death on the cross, rose from the grave, and is currently seated at the right hand of God. Acknowledging those things as true or believing in them is part of faith, but that's not all faith is. James 2.19 tells us that even the demons believe those things, not just believe it, but they tremble, they fear it, they shudder. So simply acknowledging the truth of the gospel mentally is not everything that faith is. The other aspect of faith, in addition to mental assent, is commitment or loyalty or reliance on God. It's acknowledging that the gospel is true and committing yourself to Jesus as Lord, relying on him for salvation. Submitting to the God of the universe because you believe he is real and is worthy of praise. So faith is total acceptance of something as true and then absolute trust with your life. It means betting your life that there is a God. Betting your life that he did come to earth in the person of Jesus and betting your life that salvation is only available through him. Commentator William Barclay says this, faith begins with receptivity. It begins when we are at least willing to listen to the message of the truth, but it goes on to mental assent. We first hear and then agree that this is true, but mental assent need not result in action. Many people know very well that something is true, but do not change their actions to meet that knowledge. The final stage is when this mental assent becomes total surrender. In fully fledged faith, we hear the Christian message, agree that it is true, and then cast ourselves upon it in a life of total submission. I used to work in middle school ministry at another church. And every summer we would take kids to a camp in Northern California. And this camp had all kinds of like ropes courses and things for, uh, that the kids could do that were a ton of fun, lots of activities. And one of them, uh, I think it was called the flying squirrel. And it was basically this 30 foot pole that you could climb up to the top of and then stand on. And then there was like a trapeze bar. I don't know how far it was, seven or nine feet or something like that, that you could try to jump and grab onto. You have a harness and so it's not just like you're going for it, you know, but uh, so they strap you in with like a, like a harness and there's someone belaying you at the bottom. Okay. Now uh, (laughs) it's really terrifying because when you get up to the top, the like pole is shaking and you're just standing there and yeah, it's really scary. So they, they give you a little debrief beforehand and they explain how the harness worked and they tell you how much weight it can hold. And the people who are belaying are, you know, these college kids who have a whole bunch of experience, right? And so you're supposed to trust all of this. You could listen to that and you could acknowledge, yeah, yeah, that harness will hold me. That's not faith. You could put the harness on and you could climb halfway up the pole and then ah, I'm going to go back down. It's still not faith. But when you acknowledge this harness is going to hold me and then you climb up the pole and then you stand there and then you jump, that's faith. When you actually throw yourself onto the thing that you're believing in, 
with an absolute trust that it will catch you, with an absolute trust that it will hold you, with an absolute trust that it will save you, that's faith. Total acceptance and absolute trust. And that is all that is required to be made right with God. We receive righteousness from God by faith. And then out of that comes new righteous life. And so the fourth reason we could be unashamed of the gospel is because it provides life. Paul quotes Habakkuk 2.4 here and says that the righteous shall live by faith. So those who have received God's righteousness through our faith in him will live. And this definitely means eternally in heaven with our creator. Yes. And amen. But the promise of life in the gospel is not just for the future, but also for the present faith in Christ leads to life change to transformation where we start to submit to the commands of our Lord Jesus, because we recognize that he knows what is best for us. It's kind of a popular view among the unbelieving world to think that the Christian life is a restrictive life that following the archaic commands of the Bible don't lead to happiness and human flourishing. I think I've used this illustration before, but a fish is restricted to water, but it's in water within the confines of these restrictions that a fish thrives and flourishes. When a fish is taken out of this restricted environment, it suffers and ultimately dies. So if God created us, then he knows how we ought to live. And he's communicated that to us in his word. The restrictions in the Bible do not prevent happiness and human flourishing. They're actually the only way to experience happiness and human flourishing. See, everyone wants to live a good life. Everyone wants to flourish. Everyone wants to be happy, but we all chase our tails in the pursuit of these things until we receive righteousness from God through faith and then live out of that righteousness in alignment with his will and character. Though we are often shamed for it, we can be unashamed of the gospel. We can preach it eagerly and boldly like Paul did, despite the ridicule and pushback we might receive. And we can do this because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We can do this because the gospel reveals God's righteous character, action, and gift. We can do this because the gospel is received by faith. And we can do this because the gospel leads to true, abundant, eternal life. I said at the beginning, uh, we all know what it's like to be embarrassed. We all know what it's like to be ashamed of something we've done. And for many of us, if not all of us, that embarrassment and shame goes much deeper than a few silly things we might have done as a kid that we can laugh at now. For many of us, we're ashamed of who we are, the sins of our past, the brokenness in our life caused by our rebellion against God. But the good news of the gospel is that God is not ashamed of you. And he has proven that by stepping into our world in Jesus, who lived a perfect life but died a shameful death on a cross for our sins. Jesus bore our sin and the shame that came with it, and he buried it in the grave. And now because of God's great love and grace, anyone who comes to Jesus in faith, no matter how shameful or embarrassed they are of their past, can be counted righteous by God and saved from their sin. Jesus is not ashamed of you. And so you don't have to be ashamed of him. We get a picture of this in the gospel of John. In John chapter four, we have a story of Jesus interacting with a woman at a well in Samaria. And everything about this encounter suggests that this woman uh, was ashamed and an outcast. The time of day that she arrives at the well is unusual for the time when people went to draw water, which tells us that she was a social outcast and not welcome among the crowd that would usually go to draw water. In that culture, it was uh, odd or, or at, at, the, at least and uh, 
unlikely uh, that a uh, woman would speak with a man. And then you have the, the ethnic disparity here as well. Jesus being Jewish and this woman being a Samaritan and those people groups didn't get along. And as Jesus is interacting with her and, and they're, they're having this, this interaction, eventually throughout the course of the conversation, Jesus reveals that he is well aware of her shameful past. He talks about the multiple husbands that she's had and that the man she's with now is not her husband. So Jesus is well aware of her sin. He's well aware of her past. He's well aware of the things that she is ashamed of in the past and in the present. And yet he still offers her living water, the living water of salvation that comes by grace and through faith. And the the woman's response to this is fascinating. She runs back into the town where the people who rejected her look down at her are, and she just tells them about Jesus. And we can see what happens when this shamed woman becomes unashamed of the gospel in John chapter four, verses 39 through 42. It says many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. A shamed woman becomes unashamed of the gospel and boldly proclaims it to a town of people who come to know Jesus, who then go boldly proclaim it to the world. See, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so let us all be unashamed of it, eagerly preach it, that the hope of righteousness in Christ is available to a lost and broken world. Let's pray. God, thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you for this gospel message that really is truly your power, the power to save. God, I pray that you would make us a a people that is bold and eager to share this message of righteousness with the world around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.